I think AI in game development is definitely going to be a differentiator. If I think about it coupled with machine learning, you know, the ad industry has been using machine learning for a very long time. It's going to have quite a seismic impact in the industry. And we're seeing surging demand for this from our developers. Welcome to Games Growth with Uptick a podcast about the discipline of scaling digital games. We speak with industry experts and investigate trends to highlight the strategies, technology, and tactical methodologies used to profitably grow your game to massive global audiences. If you're interested in learning more, visit us at uptick.com. My name is Xander Agosta, Director of Marketing here at Uptick, and joining me today are my co-host... Warren Woodward, co-founder of Uptick. And our guest... Hi, I'm Steve Webb. I'm VP of Strategic Partnerships at Unity. Awesome. Thank you for joining us, Steve. Very excited to have you here. Very excited for today's conversation because Unity is a company I follow very, very closely and I'm very interested in. The overarching theme of today's conversation will be about the evolution of ad techs and the current moment in the modern market ecosystem as we talk about the various evolution of ad tech and specifically focused on gaming. And I think there's almost no better company. There's a couple, maybe like TikTok, Meta, there's a few up there, but I put Unity in sort of the elite league of important game marketing technology companies. So with all that background, I'm, I'm really excited to have that conversation. And let's just start, Steve, tell us a little bit about your background and what's the journey that led you to Unity. For anyone who somehow doesn't know what Unity is, let's do a brief recap of what Unity is as well. Yeah, sure. So listen, thanks very much for having me. Really looking forward to the conversation. In terms of what Unity is, Unity is a games engine upon which developers can create and build a platform for content creation that you can then bring either games or movies or what we call digital twins into into life. So very much a developer-facing platform. And then the part of the organization which I work on is how we help those developers build their businesses, acquire more users, um, et cetera. Very front and center in this exciting space. In terms of like what brought me here, so I've been in media and this space for, I'm going to age myself for over 25 years. So I started off working in magazines. So for anybody who watching who doesn't know what that is, we used to print things out on paper and subscribe to them. And so I started there. I then worked for various startups during the dot-com boom, which again, aging myself there, there's been more than one, but this was the first one. And then I got into online websites, starting with CNET. Big shift for me was I joined Google in 2006. I was there for just under a decade. Primary roles were just about helping brands and advertisers leverage Google to grow. Again, really exciting time. I worked there through the DoubleClick YouTube acquisitions, the launch of Android. as one of the first people in the UK to have an Android phone. I'm one of the first people to have the privilege of being taken for a ride in a self-driving car, which was around about 2012, and it was terrifying. I joined Meta in 2015, so I was there for about seven years. I did a number of roles there, but the one probably most relevant to this was I was the global business lead for the audience network. I did that for about three years. That was really exciting time to be able to work um, for the organization. We grew the audience network into the number one monetization solution for developers. At that point, it was the only place within Meta that actually paid out right, where you were able to, um, you know, earn money from it. And so it put us in a really fantastic position. I joined Unity in 2022. I'm now running the strategic partnerships and business strategy. So fantastic role. Absolutely love it. I get to help shape our commercial offerings and our strategy for advertising, particularly. 
I get to engage with key platforms like Google and Meta, some of the companies that I've worked for, amongst others. And I also run a team of gaming consultants and analysts, which I kind of think as the gold dust of Unity. It's actually the capabilities that attracted me here. So I get to run that team and think about how we use them to help our customers grow. So that's just a little bit about me and what brought me here. Awesome. Thanks for all the context and the table sitting there. The thing that I think is most interesting about Unity to me is just the two sides of the business, right? So there's the game development side, the engine, which basically a huge amount of people use for game development. And in mobile, it's immense. It's 70 plus percent of folks, all games published on mobile are built through Unity, which is just a huge advantage for that company overall. And the other side is the promote business, which is basically how do you bring games to market? And so I'd like to start a little bit with Maybe the game engine is the more intuitive one to people who don't know a ton. It's a tool set that helps you build games. Pretty straightforward. Talk a little bit about the promote side and what are the various components that you have on the Unity side that help with game publishing? Yeah, I mean, like you, so you've nailed it there. We're very much about building a holistic solution, right? Gaming is where we're seeing the most adoption, but we want to be able to help content creators realize their vision. We call that part of the business grow that you talk about is in promote. It fits into our vision around having the entire development life cycle. So we want to be there when people are building, running, and then growing that. You get to a point where you've realized your vision. We work in a creative industry. The idea comes to life, and then you're in a situation where you want to be able to share that, right? You want to be able to acquire users. You want to be able to think about different monetization solutions for that. And so the grow part of the business is where we do that. So I simplify it and think of it as being that like we, we just help them create successful businesses. So all the solutions that we bring out will help them launch, help them acquire users, help them grow and scale those products. And so it's a very clear mission to me that it's about helping them turn into sustainable businesses. And within that, we want to do that across the entire growth cycle of a game or an app, right? So that's everything from early stage marketability testing being able to prototype and work out if there's an audience more if you need to fine tune before you go into hard launch. It's also in the publishing space. We help some developers publish right through to revenue, scaling your business, reporting, analytics. And we're talking about the spectrum of developers. We're talking about early stage and indies right up to the biggest developers on the planet. We want to be able to provide them with the tool set that they need to continue growing those sustainable businesses. And so that's the bit that I'm in, which is that grow section. Steve, I'd love to maybe dig a little deeper into that. Our team here at Uptick, we're focused on games growth. We do a lot of business with Unity and other channels for user acquisition. And one thing we think a lot is, why do we work with Partner X? What differentiates them in our user acquisition stack of partners? To me, the one thing that I always think about with Unity that really differentiates has to do with the whole other huge part of the business of Unity as a developer environment. And one thing that I have attributed to Unity we've talked about in the past is there are so many games out there who don't have any other ad serving infrastructure, but they have Unity serving ads because it's already a framework that's already innate. They, they've already been building on Unity. So we have this assumption that Unity, because of that unique edge, has access to game inventory that you wouldn't find elsewhere because of that subset of developers that may not be serving ads in any other way. Do you agree this is a large differentiator? And what are the other differentiators? Basically, why should people bother fitting Unity into their partner stack for user acquisition? Yeah, sure. No, it's a really good observation. So I think that we are in a privileged position in the marketplace in terms of how our brand is perceived by our community. Right? And that's an important word. At Unity, 
we talk about the developers as being the community, not being our users, not being our payers, right? It's actually, we see ourselves as being an absolutely critical part of the community. That gives us this fantastic position. We're definitely one of those bellwethers of an industry that people look to us and expect us either to speak on their behalf or be able to anticipate what their needs are to help them being able to continue and grow. And so naturally, if you're an, an indie developer who's starting out for the first time, a bedroom coder, whatever it happens to be, there's a high chance that you're going to be doing that through some of the free-to-use Unity products. You're going to be using some of the asset library. You're going to be bringing your ideas to realization. And again, we think for us, the opportunity that when they're ready to start turning that into a business, there's a fantastic opportunity for us to be able to do that with them in a very distinct way. And so we do have developers who are on the platform that will start off using Unity monetization solutions, and then we'll continue on that path. Normally, they will get to a point at some stage where we're then speaking to them about how they can integrate others, but not always. And I think whenever we look at the major components of the monetization ecosystem and our place within it, we tend to think about it from a perspective of looking at a growth loop. Right, So that's how we will be thinking about the products, be thinking about the lifetime value of where those products make sense to introduce them and how much utility they have for the community. Starts in the beginning, you know, the marketability test, we work with our community to be able to enable them to take de-risk by using these marketability tests and by sharing insights into genres, categories, where others being able to develop and be able to work out if the game is going to be profitable or not. We also then naturally look to bring our advertising demand in there. So if you're in the sense of being able to acquire the users, then naturally there becomes a way to look at different business models in terms of monetization. We give a lot of advice on that front. So the teams will work a lot with developers as they work that out. And then there's also just a really strong support network in terms of the service that we provide and being able to respond to that. So it's interesting as a company, so many of our employees are passionate about gaming. They're from gaming themselves. Our tech support team, they're not just turning up nine to five and it could be anything that's coming in the door. Like they understand the needs of the community. They understand how to best serve that and they go above and beyond. And so I think that place in the ecosystem is quite unique, but also it's part of the fabric of being unity. Frankly, that's one of the reasons I came here. I personally believe that sort of mission allows us to really remain focused on the needs of the community and that really helps. Cool. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense, Stephen. It sounds like the main differentiator that you're sort of calling out. There's a couple of different differentiators. I mean, the reach is obviously a huge one. The other one that you've called out specifically is the growth consultancy and the fact that you have a lot of context and able to bring those resources to bear on some of these accounts. I'm going to go step back a little bit and talk about more about the historical context of the modern marketing ecosystem as it focuses on games. You've been around a while, so you're a good person to talk to about this. Can you, at a high level, talk about what has the arc been of the ad tech ecosystem as it relates to games? How do you think about different eras? And then let's place us like a pin. Where are we now in that era? That's a big question, right? I'll do my best um, and I'll do, I'll do my best to remain high level about it. But like, it's fascinating when I was preparing for this conversation, looking back and you realize how periods that felt so long were actually so short, right? And so it's really, really interesting to look back at the evolution of the ecosystem and that, you know, think of the phases in that way. But I think you have to start in 2008, right? If we're going to talk about mobile gaming, that's probably as far back as we go, which is like the launch of the App Store. And I think 
that was revolutionary for the gaming world, just as revolutionary as iTunes was for music, right? I think probably a little bit more under the radar than iTunes was, right? I think a lot of the attention went on that. And then that was quickly followed by Android. Like I said, I was working at Google when that happened. And at the time, obviously, it was about offsetting the competitive threat from Apple, but it was also about trying to bring some cohesion for handset manufacturers because there was a plethora of different operating systems out there. And it was really hard for developers to be able to build. And then they would have to do all of these different iterations of their build if it was for Symbian or whatever, whatever. So Android was about unification. And so with that, we then had the emergence of two main distribution platforms. And I think that's probably the starting gun. If you think back to those days, there were like 500 apps on the App Store. And I think last time there was, I think 1.6 million on the Apple Store and about three and a half million on Google. So we've seen a lot of proliferation there. You know, when we see the revenue that's now gone through it, we're seeing just shy of 200 billions being spent in the App Stores to this point and mobile games being more than half of that. When it started, it was pretty much premium, right? It was premium apps. It was about paying for the app. That was really what the model was seen of. I mean, who can remember back to the days when you were spending $8.99, $12.99 or whatever it was just to get the app onto your phone, right? Like that's where it was started. It was seen as being people would buy the utility. Mobile game developers very quickly realized that there was a limited audience. For that, even a 99 cents ticket price was going to limit demand. So then Apple, as a result of that pressure, brought about in-app purchases, right? Where you were able to start to think about the app economy and then create this new monetization route for free-to-play games. What that led to within advertising was the discovery on the app store was okay, but there were like a couple of premium slots that if you weren't in there, there wasn't much else that you could do to promote. And so we started to see the rise of becoming almost like a de facto discovery engine for being able to get apps. And you've got to remember, this is in the days where everybody who had a phone had Facebook, right? It was just absolutely ubiquitous. And they had the most information on all of those different profiles. And they were IAP businesses were one of the fine wheels, right? That was the main thing they wanted to do. That meant if they were finding wheels, they were completely dependent on that. And there was this huge audience. I think at the moment, it's around about 97% of your players never buy anything in your app. So you're suddenly building your product and giving it away for free to 97% of the people who are coming in to use it. And so we then started seeing like a move for ads starting to come in, both in terms of user acquisition, increasingly as a way to monetize. So like in-app advertising started to raise up and guess what? One of the best places to advertise games and find more users is in other games, right? People are in that mindset. So we see this like real evolution where it was creating its own ecosystem. Publishers were nervous. Developers were nervous early on, right? Where it was seen as being a taboo. Ads in my game, like I would never do that. It was like a mark of pride to not have ads in your game, like in those formative eras. Yeah, completely. I mean, it was seen as like, you know, it was breaking the sea, right? There's developers I worked with when I was at Meta who tried it and it didn't work. And it was like two or three years of trying to convince them that this wasn't going to harm the user experience before they would try again. I think that fear has largely been dissipated. And I think one of the reasons it's been dissipated is that we started to create ad formats which were attuned to the uniqueness of games. If you try and cram a 60-second TV ad in between a couple of levels on a game that you're really hooked on, it's going to be an awful experience for everybody. If you try and take an internet IAB banner and just cram it into these spaces, then naturally you're going to lead to some user burn. So we started to see the creation of ad formats that started to look more like the games that they were in and started to behave that way. And so rewarded video was like a massive breakthrough on that front. And then 
that led us to a place where the ads then started becoming much more part of the experience, right? So particularly when you see rewarded video, offer wall, and you see playable ads, you're starting to see ad formats that a lot of mainstream advertisers just can't make any sense of, right? They don't get it. And I've spent a lot of time speaking to them. And so these formats have really turbocharged it. We've gone full circle. We now see that the games that have ads have higher rates of retention than IAP-only games. We've just done our 2023 gaming report, and that was like one of the standout areas. So then the next stage was like ad-only games, right? And so then we moved, we came full circle, where we moved into hyper-casual. And that's where then we saw the business model being purely on ads, then actually started to influence the game model, where the games became more snackable, they became much lower commitment entertainment, something you could enjoy in short intervals. They weren't like some of the more in-depth games that we'd had up to that point. And so we started to see pure free-to-play ad-funded games. And also then they were spending a lot to acquire users because the LTVs are different and you're like in a totally different model. And then hyper-casual just became this overnight success to where I think when I looked at last year, if not last year, certainly the year before, they were about 40-odd percent of downloads in the charts. So now we're seeing that the hyper-casual market is starting to think about, okay, how do I become hybrid? How do I start to introduce IAP into the game? So we're seeing this confluence around business models which are respectful of user behavior and so want to have game economies that are a blend of ads and buying. And so within all of that, obviously UA and user acquisition evolution has completely changed, right? And the needs of the publisher have also changed as well because the publisher's yeah. now speaking to someone like Unity that's both sides of the market. They're acquiring and then they're also monetizing and they're factoring in that monetization into the user acquisition. Right. We're covering a, a ton very quickly here. I want to pause you on that last point. You gave a really good summary of the evolution of what, maybe two decades of the mobile average advertising ecosystem evolving in these eras, you've represented more the, we'll call it the inventory side. And while myself, the team, our colleagues, like we're working on the other side of that. So I'd maybe like to pause and discuss the other side of that to your point of how buying strategies have evolved through these eras, because they're the two sides of the same coin. And please interrupt with any insights you have. So like when I think about the same time period from a buyer standpoint, performance marketing that we know it's day didn't really exist in like that first kind of premium era of apps. The technology wasn't really there. The piping just didn't really work for this. With free to play and the advent of the earliest forms of attribution, this is the first big boom of mobile performance marketing that in some way resembles what we have today. And I know when I was first breaking into the industry, I asked a friend I had that had been working, this was maybe like 2013 era, like, hey, what are the go-to tactics here? And he walked me through, okay, so what you want to do, there's these companies like Chartboost and other networks. You just want to basically get all these cheap ass installs. You just want to get to the top of the charts and then the money will come from that. And that was like a default playbook. I think it was dying out as I was entering the industry, but I witnessed the last shreds of it. So it was like a very different buying strategy where it was just arbitraging Apple's algorithm to get to the top of the charts. And also the attribution technology was not real advanced yet. The ideas of like measuring return on ad spend and in-app events, most companies were not doing that by default. Is that assessment kind of right for that first era or any nuance ad from the ad network, the ad tech side of it for yeah. the first era? People were able or were assuming aggregated value from buying cheap, cheap clicks, installs, much in the same way as when search launched, right? It was yeah. purely about traffic as opposed yeah. to targeted what are they going to do when they land? So very, very similar trajectory. Yeah. So I think that's accurate. 
Yeah. And people have like target CPIs as about as deep funnel as the metrics as most the average team went. And then the next era, which I'd say was the bulk of my career until you know, the last couple of years was like, the, we'll call it the era of perfect data, where like if you put the attribution provider in place correctly, you could see pretty exact return on ad spend, deep funnel metrics for every user. And this was maybe the golden age. This was the era where companies like Machine Zone were really spending relentlessly. And I'd say user acquisition in its current state became the most in-demand, the most go-to proven tactic. And this was the era that lasted till, what was it, like 2021, when we hit this third major era that I would call is just like the privacy era, which is, it's like the Thanos snap. A lot of this world that we got used to working in stopped working, you know, at least for iOS and Google, Android, likely on the horizon. Do you agree with kind of like the summary of those other two eras, like that perfect data era and the heyday of traditional user acquisition, most people think of it, and then this kind of like rebirth period, rewriting of the rules that we're in now? Like, you know, on personal, I was at Audience Network during that period. And so I think, you know, that Thanos snap was aimed primarily at the product that I was running. So lived it, lived it firsthand. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, that basically brings us up to the present and maybe that's a nice thing to talk about now. So we talked about the Thanos app. Can we give a little bit of context? for what is the current state of the games marketing ecosystem? Who are the major players? What are the important and interesting dynamics that a modern marketer should be keeping track of? I would say there's obviously been a period of change. Of that, there's no doubt. But I think the ecosystem is resilient, right? And I think that change has come not just from some of the topics we talked in terms of that golden age, but also in terms of we came out of shelter globally. There was this boom time and people playing games, downloading games, right? You know what I mean? There was just like a lot of variability there. What we're seeing at the moment is that there is a lot of resilience. I see that a lot of our advertiser and publisher partners have adapted and they continue to adapt. They're able to run very successful businesses within the current ecosystem. And so I think there's like a period where there was a huge fear when some of those changes got brought out. And I think that's now dissipating. And I think we're seeing a lot more success there. For us, it's back to where we believe we can have USPs. So we feel that there's broadly like a level playing field in terms of how data can be used because there's a lot more stipulation on those requirements. So I think that's created more of a level playing field and uh, has maybe removed the disadvantage of some of the companies like Facebook and others who had you know, very, very walled garden type information. So when I think about then, like our USPs, it's all the stuff I kind of talked about at the start, right? It's in terms of being in the game development cycle, it's being able to understand the needs of the gaming developer, et cetera, et cetera. Like we're seeing like a really interesting point now for the sector where we feel that we've got that strength and we're starting to see key partnerships reflect that where people will cite us as their most strategic partner and want to see us join up even more when it comes to how we approach them as entities. And we also are now starting to see that the game playing in and of itself is starting to shift as well, where it feels like it's finally starting to become much more mainstream. So we're definitely starting to see much more interest in the audiences and the surfaces from non-endemic advertisers. So we're seeing that mainstream advertisers are starting to recognize a lot of the opportunity here. 
They're also starting to recognize the future-facing aspect of the industry and want to be part of that. And so we're starting to see a lot of focus there. In terms of tangibly, in terms of what developers look to us for, there's definitely been much more of a focus on creatives. So I think that when we move out of that world where the targeting kind of did the work, but then you're into a world which is ironically a little more akin to mainstream advertising, where there's a lot more creative experimentation, the desire to be able to try different stuff out. There's also a desire for scale. So we've seen that the last data AI report that was showing that when you look at downloads globally, they're fairly constant, but where the growth is in new and emerging markets, like mm. Mexico, Hong Kong, Indonesia, Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. And so that requires, if you're a developer, then you need a partner who's got scale into those different marketplaces. We're seeing that as being like a, a differentiator. And then it's just also, it's reliability. We're moving out of that phase of the market where the benefit of having lots of different point players and then having to kind of stitch it all together yourself. When you're running really big scaled apps, that becomes less sustainable. And so we're seeing a big focus from our customers on just reliability in terms of like the stack, right? In terms of how stable it can be, reducing latency and all of that type of stuff that then, you know, potentially can have a negative impact on the player experience. So I'd probably categorize it into those areas. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like with the high level, we had the boom period perfect privacy into COVID. It's like the perfect wind of having a huge amount of growth and very low interest rates. Since then, we've had a sort of a confluence of things that have happened. We've seen privacy change significantly. You know, perfect targeting has gone away. Money is much more expensive now. We saw sort of like a retrenchment. There's like a brush fire, cleared out a lot of the zombie companies or at least consolidated them up. Warren and I see, talked to tons of game companies. Like we're seeing a resurgence much like what you're describing, Steve. It quieted down for a little bit the back half of last year. And now people are crawling up. And now all of a sudden, it almost seems like we're getting to jogging or sprinting again pretty soon. That's a great thing. I want to talk a little bit about consolidation. It tends to go with every market cycle. Something that's really interesting we're seeing across both game companies, but also ad tech companies, is this consolidation. Let's talk a little bit about what that means. Obviously, Unity snapped up Iron Source recently. Huge consolidated move. We talked about it a lot on the podcast at the time. Curious what it means for Unity, but also to get Aperture out wider, what does it mean for overall? Are we consolidating out of necessity? Because we have to, our company is going to just fall apart. Is there not as much of a opportunity for small niche players? Talk broadly, what does the theme of consolidation mean for the games ecosystem writ large? Yeah, it's a fascinating trend that, that is happening. And, and if you think about it, it's been really the last 24 plus months, right, where we've seen this. And I think there's a couple of things that are driving it. I think the industry is coming out of the basement. I came into this world through mainstream media. I used to spend a lot of my time at Google introducing search and then YouTube to people like Nestle and Unilever and people who would spend billions on advertising who just didn't understand how consumer behavior was changing. And I then found myself when I was at Facebook having the same conversations with literally the same people, which was ironic, about gaming, trying to explain to them that there was this place that was brand safe, interactive, diverse audiences. You know, if you look at Candy Crush, quite often they've got brands where they're looking to target women aged 45 to 55, being able to actually show that there are single properties on the planet that have all of that. And so I think that's leading to consolidation, like in terms of people are finally, you know, coming to that point. There was a great article done in 
the Harvard Business Review. And so I, I think this is natural, right? I think we've seen this before. They identify these four stages of an industry consolidation. And I, I like I think we're in that. They call it the consolidation curve. So if you want to search it up, you can find it in much more depth. The first stage is just opening up and proliferation, right? Where you get like a technology breakthrough or something happens and then you just suddenly get all of these different organizations will just will just pop, right? They'll all jump, um, they'll all jump in. You might get somebody defining this space, but more often than not, it's like it's highly competitive and it's hard to know who's gonna win. The next stage is scale, right? Where once you've kind of succeeded in a particular area, you want to start to move to the scale stage. And if you don't get to scale, it can then be really, really hard to go ahead. The next stage of that is focus, where you then start to see companies become absolutely brilliant at what they do. And I think, you know, we see that in the gaming ecosystem. We see companies who have decided to focus on puzzle, and that is it. And that is all they're going to do. And they're not going to get distracted by trends in hyper-casual or other areas. And they'll always look to make judicious acquisitions that are based on that expertise that they've got in a particular place. And then the final stage you get to is balance and alliance, which is where you kind of get this this equilibrium starts to settle. And then that's where you have companies actually start to work together where they're like, you know what, we've made it to the, if not the finish line, we're close to it. Why don't we actually try and grow the overall sector? Like, why don't we try and partner together? I would say that we're probably in in that focus stage at the moment in terms of we're starting to see some big shifts. I and mean, what's hard about gaming is that there's actually an intersection of lots of different industries within it, right? So you've got entertainment organizations are starting to see this as being a viable place. We're starting to see the influx of like some of the Middle Eastern development zones where they see it as a future bet in terms of building their own entertainment industries. We're just seeing the big players who have been around for a long time doing what Facebook did with Instagram, right? They're kind of going, you know what, we think this genre is going to pop, so we're going to make some judicious investments here. Not everyone's at the same stage, but I think overall as an industry, we're in that kind of focus stage. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the acquisition. And I think that's also true of the ad tech side of it, right? In terms of the infrastructure that's making people do that. And I think we represent that. We have our acquisition uh, and merger with IronSource kicked off in November. And you know that's something that we're continuing to work on and seeing the benefits from. And I think there'll be some others as well, right? You know, we've seen some of the other big players in the space do the same thing where they can, because not everybody can, right? Well, either because of credit or because of anti-competitive. So it's unlikely that Google, seeing that they're at the end of their free and easy acquisition spree, right? It's as well. a lot harder for them. Facebook have similar restrictions to be able to do that. And so we're able to plan that space with a little bit more freedom. I think I, I definitely agree to you about those phases of the consolidation cycle. Definitely agree where we are in terms of the mobile games ecosystem specifically. But I think that there are also, what we're seeing on our side a lot is now there's a whole ancillary and new ecosystem that is evolving. And it came to do on the back of massive amounts of billions of dollars of VC funding over the last several years. And that is the Web3 games ecosystem is now starting to evolve. And the interesting thing is it basically existed as a very niche audience, niche product for a very, very long time. And there was an immense amount of money poured into there. We had these hyper whales who are spending tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, on these game assets. And now we're seeing those game assets and those game ecosystems hybrid into the other existing ecosystem. Warren, do you have thoughts? Yeah, we've been working pretty heavily with these Web3 gaming companies for the last few years. And initially, I almost feel like people treated Web3 as a platform of this is a Web3 game. Make your wallet, connect your wallet here. This is how you play. Buy this NFT to play. And... 
there's clearly a lot of problems with it. And what I've really seen with the most mature developers now is not thinking of Web3 as a platform, but just as a technology used within games. And that this then can be a technology used within PC games, used within mobile games. And the most savvy companies I'm seeing make a heavy bias towards mobile. And so what that means is that there's a lot more of a hybridization of the marketing approaches. It's, it used to be that in this early period of Web3 Gaming, so it was like a completely different playbook we had to play. But I'm curious, Steve, if you're also on the network side starting to see similar trends of having teams born from the Web3 space or teams building with Web3 DNA that are now looking to launch more traditional feeling mobile apps, work with established providers such as Unity on the growth side. Any insights or anecdotes? Yeah, yeah. Listen, I, like I think I think your your read of it is accurate. Like I think when you look at the underlying technology and the principles of where we believe um, player behavior will go, then it seems like a natural evolution of where we are. Right? We already see player behaviors that indicate that this is just going to be successful. I think what it suffered from was an over evaluation that came about through people wanting to get the next big thing. Um, you know, there was a lot of cheap money, as you as you said, that was um, that was swirling around. And so I think, which by the way, is very similar. I talked about working through the dot-com crash in like early 2000s. It felt really similar, right? It felt like a very, very similar phase where there was a desire to land ground up and get on the next big thing. I think we're through that. I hope we're through that. And then we're back to like, what are the underlying principles in terms of how people want to engage with gaming assets and how do we want to actually enable consumer behavior? And so I feel that we're getting back to that. And what will likely happen is you will see those behaviors being transplanted onto existing IPs and looking to enhance onto these areas. And then we'll probably see a degree of resurgence that will come back from it. So you know the space. I think it likely suffered from being a little bit after the crypto boom. Inexorably tied to the crypto boom, I think. Yeah. Like I've got kids. Whenever your 15-year-old comes and tells you that you need to start buying Bitcoin, you know that there's something going wrong with a market. Hopefully now the true value will actually start to surface. I think it is. I want to talk a little bit about the future in our last few minutes. Obviously, I think we as Uptick have put a pretty big bet that we're going to see evolution of gain ecosystems in the same way that we saw evolution from originally premium to IP to advertising to now hybriding all up and down. I think at up to we believe that there's going to be an evolution as we fold Web3 into some of the games where it makes sense to do that as well. And you'll see there be these massive hybrid economies. I would expect that to be a clear path forward. What are other future looking trends that game developers and game publishers and game marketers should look towards? And what is the technology that will unlock those trends? I always do my disclaimer here when I'm asked about the future. I have been working in big tech for 25 years and I'm doing this call from an office, not a yacht. If I could predict the future, I'd, uh, I'd probably be in a different situation. I think it'll follow the trends of media and tech industries in general, right? I, I can't help but feel that economics tend to trump some of the technologies. And so I think, like I said, with that Harvard Business Review thing, we'll have proliferation, fragmentation then a race to set standards, and then you have a period of consolidation where we start to see that. And I think advertisers, developers, publishers want to see two things. It's just like reliability and innovation, right? And as long as you're able to kind of balance those two things together, then they'll jump in. In terms of like, you know, some of the technology trends, I think 
it would be impossible to do this call without talking about AI. I just think if there's probably one area where we'll see that change, I think it's there. Like, you know, how consumers are going to connect with content in the future is just changing like never before. And so I worked at Meta when it became Meta and was able to experience some of those early surfaces. And regardless of your thoughts on their ability to scale, how you are put at the center of a content experience is naturally going to start to influence outside of there. And that type of content is going to evolve. And I think listen, gaming companies are always ahead of the curve and they're always setting those trends. But I think AI in game development and live game management is early stage. But I definitely feel that it's going to be a differentiator, right? It's going to enable smaller teams to create more content. It's going to really fuel live up. Things are going to be able to be done faster. If I think about it coupled with machine learning, you know, the ad industry has been using machine learning for a very long time. And obviously strength there is going to help improve AI there. And so I just think it's going to have quite a seismic impact in the industry. And we're seeing surging demand for this from our developers. So we've just obviously created the new AI marketplace in the asset store. We're going to make it easier for creators to be able to access AI solutions. That's based on market need and what our developers are telling us that they want to see. And so you can see that as a real powerful signal. So like, you know, we're trying to find a way for developers to harness the power of AI so that they can build better content. And so I think within that, that's probably the biggest area. I think we'll continue to see a shift in terms of the surfaces that people are engaging with IP on as well. So like cross screen and IP that can interact with regardless of what device you're on. But I think the real future one is going to be how AI will transform the industry. Steve, what does that mean practically? I mean, obviously, like any prediction set in 2023 leads with AI. Again, we're focused on growth on this podcast. Most ad networks have had some positioning of their algorithms as powered by ML, powered by AI for years now. I think with differentiating of like how legitimate those claims actually are, like what is the actual either impact or actionables for the growth and marketing side from the aspects of AI that you're foreseeing? Yeah, sure. I think a bit more to like the content side for game developers, but how about for growth marketers? Yeah. So I think like, you know, for growth marketers, I think I'd link it back to that area that we were talking about as being a differentiator in the absence of data, right? Which is around creative. So I think that we're going to be able to see the ability to experiment more and be able to test out different creative solutions to be able to find the right user is going to be hugely eased by being able to use AI solutions. So I think that's probably where we will see like the first tangible impact from a advertising perspective. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Awesome, Steve. Well, we're just about time. So really appreciate you joining us and having this conversation about EdTech and where it's been and where it's going. And if someone wants to get a hold of you or learn more about Unity, where can they do that? Yeah, sure. So I think you're going to like share my Twitter, although I haven't got a Threads one yet. Twitter handles there. So that's always good. My email address um, is steve.web at unity3d.com. And if it's something that I can't deal with, I'll always try and find someone within the organization who can help with that. So those are probably like the two main ways. If it's business, I'm on LinkedIn and it's just Steve Webb and you should be able to find me from the bio and profile pic. But really like open to both feedback about some of the, by the way, fascinating stuff I think that we've talked about today and we could really have gone on on some of those topics for a lot longer. But yeah, always open to feedback on that or if there's something at Unity that you need connected with to try and do that.
Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Warren, take us out. Yeah, Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great to get a crash course in the the history and the evolution of ad tech for growth marketers. And I think you've been well positioned, like you're someone who's seen it all with unique perspectives. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, really good to meet you. Awesome. As always, the podcast today was brought to you by our team here at Uptick. Here at Uptick, we both build our own technology around growth marketing. We have the Uptick platform, a bunch of really cool tools that we use for our own growth marketing at scale. And also we license to any of the teams that want to use them. And then we do full service growth marketing. This includes user acquisition, growth marketing, the data science related to that with a really awesome team of humans over here. So whether you need the humans or the machines to improve your growth marketing, feel free to reach out to Uptick. You can reach us through our website. It's uptick.com. That's U-P-P-T-I-C.com. Awesome. Talk soon. Talk soon.